This is the Two Spies Podcast, studying the Bible in a different way. What does the verse say? What is the topic being addressed? How does this affect me today? Go deeper in Scripture. Now the conversation begins with your hosts, David and Mark. Welcome to Two Spies. This is Mark, and I'll be going solo in this episode. Uh, David had some other things he had to attend to, so we're going to hold off on our Jonah study until next week when he returns. So in this episode, I'm going to be dealing with the book of Titus. When my wife and I got married in 2008, uh, she wanted a dog really bad. I didn't want any pets. Um, I had cats, I've had dogs, and I really didn't want to take care of another animal. But as we talked more and more, she ended up getting her away. And so we ended up looking at a various dog's um, on these websites and, and narrowed it down to a few. And after thinking about it and looking up um, the type of dogs they were, we ended up choosing a white corgi that was a few hours away. And because it was a few hours away, we made it a whole day trip. Uh, he was a stray dog without identification. No one came to claim him. So um, he was there for a good while. They named him Little Bit. Which we, which was a name we both hated. We didn't think it was very creative, but uh, anyway, after we got him home, we were trying to come up with a name, and I chose Titus. My wife kind of liked it because it was so different. Uh, she also felt like it didn't really fit for a dog's name, and I guess that's why she liked it because it was different. But as we continued to call our dog Titus, it kind of grew on us. And I remember she asked, "Why of all the names did Titus come out of my mouth?" And I responded that it had one of my favorite verses, and it was actually one of the first verses I've ever memorized from the Bible, is Titus 3, 5. So I figure since it's one of the, my favorite verses, and um, it's a short book, only three chapters, I figure why not tackle it in this one episode. Titus is a, a Greek or a Gentile, and is mentioned in Galatians and several, time, several times in 2 Corinthians. And based on 2 Corinthians... It appears Titus was chosen for a dif difficult missions and possessed strong leadership qualities. Uh, Paul had a strong confidence in Titus, it seems. And Titus and Timothy are similar in that they're both sent by Paul to these specific areas, as areas or specific churches. The church Timothy is overseeing in Roman province of Asia seemed to be more established, so the letters that were sent to Timothy were more detailed and dealt with other deeper issues. Titus was in Crete, but only for a certain time. Timothy was there to be the pastor at his church for, you know, the unforeseeable future. Titus was only in Crete for a certain amount of time. And this church in Crete seems to be either new or not fully developed. So this letter kind of deals with some basic instructions in the way a church body should be ran. The reason for this letter seems to be that some were questioning Titus, especially since he was a Gentile, and perhaps uh, he was dealing with several Jews in this area. Titus could have written a letter to Paul, and this would have been Paul's response, which gives Titus the stamp of approval from the apostle. And with that being said, let's kind of jump into the book of Titus and look at verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In verse 2, the phrase who never lies is the word opsides, which means free from all deceit or completely trustworthy. And in that same verse, the phrase before the ages began refers to before time. So that verse could really be read, which God free from all deceit and completely trustworthy promised before time. It's more than God just doesn't lie, but God doesn't deceive in word or action. He could be completely trusted. Paul in the first four verses gives a normal Pauline introduction to verify who's writing the letter, reminds them that God's word and instruction has no deceit and can can be completely trusted, has been promised since before time, and it has been proven in God's very spoken word through men or through the preaching. And then Paul in verse 4 mentions Titus by name as a man common in faith. So Paul, again, is giving his approval of Titus's direction because it's within that same common faith and purpose. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. In this verse, Paul mentions that he left Titus in Crete, which is where the letter is going. Paul didn't have a lot of good things to say about Crete and even quotes one of their own in verse 12, which we'll get to. But it seemed that the influence of the gospel and the influence of the work Titus is doing or has done has such a strong impact in this area because today Titus is honored in many villages, churches, and monasteries. The word elders here in verse 5 implies a person of responsibility or a counselor with age. The way Paul is writing this letter makes it appear to be a newly developed church like I mentioned earlier. But there's another view that some believe that Paul's writing this letter because Titus just wasn't doing a good job. So Paul had to take matters into his hands and remind Titus, hey, remember what I remember why I left you in Crete in the first place. Personally, I tend to lean on the former based on Titus's work shared by Paul in Corinthians that Paul had this confidence in him. And Paul is writing this letter to give that to show people that. Titus does have the approval of Paul to do these things. The letter as a whole is going to give instruction uh, back to back anything Titus says or how the church should be ran. You know, talking about the church and how it should be ran. um, In today's church culture, Christian circles, some people mention the Church of Acts and they talk about or they talk against the organization of a brick and mortar church. They talk against the physical um, denomination and the physical meeting gathering and believe that it's uh, it limits the believers. The theory of the Acts church is biblical, but so are the letters where Paul instructs the local assembly of believers how to have an organization, how to run things, and how to stay away from protection from heresy. The church really is a both and. And what I mean is the church are individuals and a place where those individuals meet. However, that meeting place is more than just a normal meeting or gathering. The church in Acts, if you look at it, is the beginning of the development of the church. 
And because it's growing so fast, and the 12 apostles can only be in so many places at once, plus you know, the persecution and being in prison limits um, their teaching ability to others. So they had to create this organization, uh, which was inspired by the Spirit to keep the focus on God, to keep the heresy silent, and have proper teaching and leaders so people won't be led astray. I know the majority of the time when people mention, let's get back to the Church of Acts as being witnesses and going out into the world. But there are times when people mention it, they simply mean they don't want to have a they don't want to have biblical accountability. They're against this organization. The church should not be an organization. Um, the church organization is more than fellowship or hanging out together. Um, there's something deeper. Uh, if if you don't have the organization, there is a lack of accountability. Paul gives instructions at what constitutes a true assembly of believers and the right way to have it done because it's possible a person may sway or err. Thus, you get instructions on how to keep it from taking place as best as possible. Paul, along with the other apostles, know that there are people who want to destroy the work of God, people who are good with words, can lure people to believe anything, and thus uh, there's needed a foundation of trustworthy believers that help protect others and keep everyone in harmony with God and one another. So it's important that when one speaks about the church in Acts, they don't ignore the churches or church government that helps us toward proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and keeping everyone accountable. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this organization or instruction. It's not to keep a thumb on people as we will look at and understand what Paul says in some of these places, but it is to help defeat heresy, help to keep sound doctrine, help to have accountability over us because when left up to ourselves, we can easily stray. So it's important to have people over us and, and we'll see what kind of qualification um, people should be in that position. So Paul leaves Titus to put people in these positions to cause proper order. Titus is instructed to appoint leaders in the church. And again, they are under persecution. Judaism is calling this new Christian thought blaspheming. So they are being attacked on all sides. And it's possible that Titus could be thrown in prison, that Titus could be killed. So if that happens, what then? You need appropriate leadership that can handle and take over the church that follows the path that God has ordained, and thus you're creating this protection and leadership to lead people towards the truth and not lead them astray. You have the word elders in verse 5 and overseer in verse 7 as the leadership that Paul is instructing Titus to set up. Some see them as two different things, and some see them as the same thing. I don't... It's not really a point to argue, as both are really just similar as what's expected of the leadership. So let's read verses 6 through 9. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So let me read the qualifications of a leader in a church. It says above reproach. The word here is adninclentos, which means blameless and is often associated with the justice system and can be interpreted without crime. It doesn't mean sinless. When a person is called blameless, it means we cannot be accused of any wrongdoing by a person. Sinless refers to we cannot be accused of any wrongdoing by God. So that's the difference between blameless and sinless. It says a husband with one wife and those children are believers. And that's one thing I'll, I'll talk about in a few minutes. Not open to debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery means accusations or a change of behavior that shows the lack of concern or a thought for consequence of action. In other words, you do things without thinking about the consequence. Insubordination means rebellious disobedience. So you must think before acting due to consequences, or I guess a good phrase is just be wise and don't be disobedient. Uh, don't be arrogant implies that you shouldn't be stubborn or thinking of yourself better than others. Don't be quick-tempered. Don't be a drunkard or addicted to wine. Don't be violent. This is interesting. The word violent here is plaquetase, which isn't just dealing with fighting violence, but bullying and demanding. So, so don't fight physically or verbally. Don't be bullying or demanding. We're told to be servants. Don't be greedy for gain. Peter expounds on this issue when he talks about don't be greedy for money, but eager to serve. So, and it's dealing with uh, don't be about a profit. Be hospitable, which indicates really to be directed towards strangers and foreigners. And that's another thing I'll expound upon. Love good. Be self-controlled, upright, holy, meaning the way you conduct yourself, and disciplined. Hold firm. Or another way to say that is be devoted to the message or the gospel so you can give sound doctrine and healthy instruction. And rebuke means to expose with proof of wrongdoing. So if you look at that list and go back and just read it for yourself and and kind of look at some of what the Greek meaning is like violence, you know, not just physical violence, but bullying or demanding, that's really a very tough list. I mentioned that there were a few points that I kind of wanted to hit on. So um, let me deal with the husband with one wife and those children are believers part. Some denominations or personal beliefs can develop depending on how you interpret this part of the verse. And to get it correct, again, we have to look at the context, but I don't mean the context and just the surrounding verses. You can go to uh, you know a few verses up top and a few verses below and still not get the full context of what's being said. Um, to get the full context as a whole instruction, you have to look at all of what Paul's been writing, all of what the apostles have been writing to the church. Uh, first, we should all agree that we can't pick and choose which one should be taken literal or figurative without screwing up the whole list. You can't take don't be quick-tempered as literal and the husband with one wife as figurative because you just create a bigger mess. You either have to take them all literal or figurative, but the way Paul presents it, it's they're all literal. So if it is literal, it raises a question that we should examine. Does that mean 
a leader in the church must be married and have kids. Now, going back to the context, in dealing with the context of all scripture, not just selecting these passages in Titus as the only instruction, I would say no. Paul mentions in another letter dealing with church instruction, it's better to remain single unless you burn with lust. Now, why would Paul say it's better and then to say that better person shouldn't even be a leader in the church? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense when you're taking the whole Bible in context. I know this can be stretched, but even Jesus wasn't married and people can, you know, I know that wasn't the purpose or the role of Jesus, but I think it's still a thing that should be noted. Uh, John the Baptist uh, that wasn't married, and I would say he would be qualified to be a leader in the church. So again, you have to take the context of the whole scripture, not just even in the book of Titus. I think it's more safe to read this verse as if you are married, have only one wife. If you have kids, make sure they are serving God so you're being a good example to others. You know, after all, leaders are all about serving or should be and leading by example, as we'll examine further in this letter. And like it mentioned, a leader isn't here to demand others to work. As we'll read on, it's about being an example. In the church, we often associate leader with boss who gives commands. Technically, Jesus gave the command for everybody. The pastor is the shepherd in that he is put in charge of the sheep and there to protect the sheep. Um, in charge doesn't imply just giving out commands, but equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. A leader protects the doctrine from heresy, protects the people from straying, and models and being an example to others on how to live. Another qualification uh, that I wanted to briefly expound on was it says be hospitable. Uh, this is dealing with strangers and foreigners, like I mentioned. There were several in Crete. Uh, and it seemed normal to not really treat these others or foreigners as a part of your group. You know, you think of that division between the Samaritans and the Jews. It wasn't a normal practice to be hospitable towards foreigners or towards people that opposed you or your enemies, etc. Um, so Paul here is instructing these church leaders, you should be hospitable uh, and model it for other believers. Jesus did it for his followers and so forth. And when you step back and look at this whole list of qualifications for a church leader, you know, like I mentioned, it's it's a tough list and one that seems to be really ignored when choosing leadership in the church. But this is a healthy doctrine and instructions. This is for a healthy church. Uh, let's move on to verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Again, Crete had a lot of Jews, and it seems they were flexing their traditional muscles in this church or area to the believers in Jesus. The word insubordinate simply means rebellious, and the phrase empty talkers and deceivers can be interpreted as a foolish babbler who say right who say wrong is right. During this time, some Jews had this, you know, bragging right that they were the chosen a group of God and that, you know, pushing away Judaism, pushing away Jesus, trying to silence this new religion, I guess. And so there was a bit of hatred and hostility towards the Gentiles, even towards Titus, because he is a Gentile. They have this form of godliness, but deny the power, you know, Paul says in other places. 
Uh, the rebellious and the foolish babbler must be silenced, Paul says in verse 11, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for a shameful gain what they ought not teach. Upsetting whole families means causing difficulty with belief. They are twisting the truth and creating a struggle in faith. So Paul here is reminding Titus and leaders and the church that there are those who have this wit about them and want to cause doubt about their faith in Jesus, which is why Paul gave these qualifications of leadership to help block and help to protect these people. Leaders need to be this kind of person because uh, there are those who are wanting to place doubt among others, and leaders are here should be there to protect and to model like we've talked about. And like I said in the very beginning of the podcast, Paul quotes that famous Cretan in verse 12, explaining that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Paul affirms that this is true in verse 13, and the response should be to rebuke or to expose the lies so they'll receive healthy teaching or instruction. These people are devoting themselves to this unhealthy doctrine that opposes the truth, but it sounds so close to the truth it's turning people away, so Paul says silence them. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul instructs to teach healthy instruction or doctrine and not to stoop to their level. Part of the healthy teaching is to go back to what a leader is supposed to be, those in the church, and instruct them in following and instruct them in the following verses. In chapter 2, verse 2, 3, and 4, it says, Older men be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound or healthy, in faith, in love, and steadfast. Older women, same thing. Likewise, uh, don't be addicted to wine. Uh, verse 4, train women to love their husbands and children. And Paul continues in verse 5, self-control, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to your husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I want to pause because there's there might be some questions about these surrounding verses, especially uh, to the ladies. You know, the phrase working at home doesn't imply that's your job, that's your job at home and you're not working an outside job. But really the phrase simply, uh, I guess, can be uh, translated as taking care of the home. You know, I think of it like the relationship in Acts. The apostles are the leaders. Then they delegate this authority to take care of other believers. They're not, uh, the apostles are not there, are not, the apostles are just, you know, blowing them off. They, they care to the fact that they are putting these others in position to care for those people. And they are, the apostles are there to do a different role. The roles are just simply different. The man in a uh, union, a relationship is to be the leader of the house, but the woman is the one taking care of the home. They have these different roles, but together it's, it's really all about being an example for the children and being an example for others. When it mentions that the word of God may not be reviled, the word reviled means to speak against someone in such a way that it harms their reputation. In other words, people are going to see how you live. So you need to do these things so people don't speak ill about God or your Christian life to the point that it harms the gospel more than helps it. And people do it all the time. You know, if you want to harm a life, if you want to harm a person's faith or walk in God, 
then talk about God and live the opposite. That's how you do harm to people's faith. Verse 7 explains the purpose of this list, uh, being examples for the younger generation, passing the torch, so to speak. The older in age should be a model of good works and teaching. In other words, lead by action and word. If it's just words, then you revile the word of God and cause harm to the reputation, as I just mentioned. But if anyone tries to oppose you, they'll be put to shame because no one can really show you at fault. Again, you're blameless. They can make things up, but when proof is needed, they'll be put to shame because there is no proof. You're blameless. Verse 9, bond servants could be taken figurative because he's dealing with how we should act toward towards others and God or be examples of godly living and not hurt the reputation of the gospel so that people can come to a real faith in Jesus Christ. We should live by putting we should live by putting ourselves low and putting others above ourselves, hence the word bondservant. Uh, we should submit to leaders as bondservants would submit to masters, and everyone submit to God as a servant so that everyone may adorn the doctrine of God or decorate themselves with the doctrine of God. In verse 12, training could be interpreted as provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits. So we can read that verse coming from verse 11 this way, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing a salvation for all people, bringing sal- uh, providing instruction with the intent of forming proper habits and to go against ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That last phrase, let no one disregard you, can simply say, let no one invalidate your authority. So let's kind of summarize what's being said so far from Paul to Titus and to the church in Crete. Uh, Paul says, here's a list of qualifications for a church leader. Find these people that fit this and appoint them as leaders. In case something happens to you or when you have to move on, uh, people are there and they're protected. They have sheep, they have shepherds there to protect. Um, Paul says, here's how to handle people who are opposing the sound doctrine or healthy teaching in the church. He says, let those who are a bit older in age model by word and action how to be godly not based on tradition, but based on sound doctrine and the doctrine that's being taught. Remember to treat others above yourself and all this so the reputation of the gospel will win others. Those who stray will return and those who accuse will be silenced. And finally, we get to the third chapter. In verse 1, Paul expounds on leadership and being blameless. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Rulers indicates worldly government and authorities seem to talk about church authority or church leadership. Verse 2 
It says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Evil can be defined by speaking against someone in order to ruin their reputation. So Paul continues his theme and and simply says, be good examples and don't show favoritism. Don't ruin the reputation of others and don't ruin the reputation of the gospel. In verses 3 through 7, Paul wants to remind us, as he often does, that we were once a part of this world and how evil and corrupt we were. But here reminds us who God is and what he has done, and that when the Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done in righteousness, but according to his, being God's, own mercy. It reads like this, starting at verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we once were. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, these qualifications that Paul gave, this living by example, this walking blameless, is really impossible without God. If you treat others bad, remember how bad you really are in God's view. Remember, God saved you not by any work you've done or any good deed you've done. God didn't save you because of who you are. He saved you because of who he is. And Paul here is helping the church fix their thinking, and reminding them of the truth that it's God and not us. Verses 9 through 11 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The word controversies here means a forceful difference of opinion without having a goal of seeking a solution. In other words, avoid opinions that are different from yours if there's no real goal in finding a solution. Uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase that in a second more. Avoid quarrels about the law, talking about you know the Jewish law because it brings no benefit. You know, remember when the Pharisees were proud to be children of Abraham and Jesus said God could take any of these stones and turn it to a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. People took this special pride about certain regulations more so than just being a child of God. They were more proud of being a child of Abraham than of God. The law does not save. It just shows us how bad we are. It's a mirror. Avoid the quarrels about it because it's Jesus that saves and Jesus that brings value. The law and these things that Paul lists here are worthless or fruitless, I think is a better word. They just don't bring any value. The word warped in verse 11 means to have departed from patterns of, cor- of correct behavior and you've become corrupt or you've been turned inside out. A person that get, gives... 
A person that gets involved in the things listed in verses 9 through 10 is departing or has departed from correction. In other words, focus on the things that bring value. Now, I don't think it means avoid conversations about various topics in the Bible. I think it means that your focus can be so consumed with these topics or these other things that don't bring really any value that uh, the things that do have value lose value. So you become corrupt in your thinking. You put your you put all your chips on things that don't matter. And when the things that do matter come up, you have nothing there. So I really want to stop and examine everything we've heard. And I know it's been kind of a uh, a quick talk and, and there's a lot of information here, but I want to stop and examine everything we've heard in a nutshell. It's important to find application and ask, God, what are you saying to me? While I covered a lot in a short time and could easily get deeper, I wanted to really just hit some highlights and for us to understand the underlining theme that Paul is presenting here to Titus. Be godly examples to the younger. Model what it means to be a servant of Christ and servant of others. Don't get caught up in the things that have no value and hold them like they mean the world. Think of it like a spiderweb. You know, you, you get all tangled up, but the spiderweb has no value, but you spend you can spend hours uh, taking every small strand of the web off of you and and examine your clothes and making sure that nothing, you know, none of the spiderweb is left on you. And so then when you start walking, you can look around and make sure you don't run into another spiderweb again. But it's just a web. It has no value. So don't put so much importance on things that don't bring value to others. Silence people by being blameless. I think really the theme of Titus can be said in one simple sentence. Watch how you live for the sake of the gospel. Watch how you treat others. Watch how you treat church leaders. Watch how you treat the government. Watch how you live. Just watch how you live for the sake of the gospel because, like it was said at the very beginning, you can ruin the reputation of the gospel by how you live. I hope you got something out of this rambling today and dealing with the book of Titus. Again, next week, David will be with me as we kind of start on the book of Jonah. Thanks for listening to the Two Spies podcast with David and Mark. Don't forget to check out twospies.net for daily devotionals, writings on various topics and separate Bible studies. Help us out by subscribing to the podcast, write a review on iTunes and spread the word.